Hola, listeners. Welcome to Bonus Show 11 of the West Virginia Writers Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Fritzhughes. Well, we're wrapping up our celebration of April as National Poetry Month with a repodcast of a previous interview with a poet. In this case, we're talking about Mary Lucille de Berry. Now, before I get to the Mary Lucille de Berry rebroadcast, I'd just like to thank those of you who've been calling in for our special Mother's Day podcast and leaving your poems and stories and essays and what have you on our special Mother's Day hotline. You can find out all the details about that at our podcast website, which is podcast.wvwriters.org. And just look for the Mother's Day entry, and it'll give you all the details about the phone number you can call in order to leave your own Mother's Day story, which will be broadcasting or podcasting, as they say, on May the 9th, Mother's Day. As I was saying, Mary Lucille de Berry, she was one of the early poets that we had on the podcast here. Now, Mary Lucille DeBerry worked for many years in Morgantown for West Virginia Public Television, and she produced historical, cultural, public affairs series, segments, programs, including co-producing the animated version of Frank Stockton's story, Griffin and the Minor Canon. Her poetry has appeared in numerous regional journals and anthologies, such as Appalachian Heritage, Grab a Nickel, Panorama, Now and Then, and, of course, Wild Sweet Notes, 50 Years of West Virginia Poetry. Uh, She's taught poetry workshops at our summer conference in the past, and in fact, it was this past year's summer conference that I first became aware that she herself had a new poetry collection out called Bertha Butcher's Coat, and I couldn't have been more happy to pick up a copy right there at the conference, have her autograph it for me, and read it. I enjoyed it quite thoroughly, was very excited to talk to Mary Lucille DeBerry in person on the phone, but this was where we had our, our very first episode of massive technical difficulties. I was about five minutes away from our scheduled interview time of 11 a.m. on a particular Tuesday morning when what happens to me but the power goes out at my house. Now, when that happens, that means I can't use not even the phone because I've got one of these internet phone systems. So everything's all done through things that require power. Furthermore, I had just returned from being out of town, having left my cell phone's charging station at my parents' house, so I couldn't even call her on the phone, not to mention the fact that I couldn't even look up her number on the internet in order to call her on the phone. The way I got out of this was I had to drive across town here in Mercer County to my wife's office and use her phone and her internet connection in order to find out all this information and call and reschedule with Mary Lucille, and fortunately, several hours later... Appalachian Power Associates got my power restored to me, and we were able to continue our interview. Long story short, here we go, our repodcast of Mary Lucille DeBerry's interview from July 31st of 2009. Now, I'm very much glad to be talking to you now, because I had a bit of a scare last month um, in June. You and I had had actually spoken in mid-June at the West Virginia Writers Summer Conference and talked about your new collection, and I suggested you come on the podcast. Well, I wasn't sure when we were going to record that, but a couple of weeks after the conference, I started doing a bit of research on you, and Google searched your name and found something rather chilling. Oh, the obituary. Yes. (laughs) I found it the other day, and it was extremely eerie to find someone with the exact same name who had just died. Yes, I didn't know if you were aware of that, but but yeah... uh, turned out there was another Mary Lucille DeBerry in Columbia, South Carolina. 
But the scary thing was I had to read a little way into the article to realize that she was in South Carolina and not Morgantown. You know, I don't know if they were related or not. I do know that in West Virginia, almost every DeBerry, actually, I don't even need to say almost, every DeBerry I've ever met who was from West Virginia was descended from John and then his son Archibald in Preston County. Well, I was very glad that I was was, uh, not too late to interview you. (laughs) (laughs) I am too. I think you and I first met at probably the 2006 summer conference, and I think our first official meeting was when I offered you a lift to the awards banquet and was pleasantly happy that you won a couple of awards that night. Well, I'm glad you remember that. And um, it certainly is a joy to hear your name mentioned on the night of the awards, and it's also quite acceptable if your name isn't mentioned, because I think the main thing about the West Virginia Writers' Competition that is really important to writers is that you find tin pieces in order to enter, and then the winning, if it happens, is a plus. How long have you been a member of West Virginia Writers? Well, the first conference I attended was at Jackson's Mill. And I was trying to figure out when that was. I would guess the late 70s or early 80s. Jane Ann Phillips was there and Meredith Sue Willis. And it was a wonderful conference. And I think it was after that conference that I decided to take a poetry writing class in the evening at West Virginia University. And that's really when I started writing poems um, was in the early 80s. Some poems in this collection go back to that first class I took, and that was inspired by attending West Virginia Writers' Conference. Bertha Butcher's Code, as we said, is the title of your new collection. First off, who is Bertha Butcher? Bertha Butcher is the woman who raised my mother. My mother's mother died when she was five, and her great-great, well, her great-grandmother, my great-great-grandmother, was really too old to raise my mother. She had raised her children, all of whom had died, two grandchildren who had died, and then my mother's little sister died. And mother was frail, and everybody was worried about her. This sort of takes us back to your opening in the obituary. But living on the farm, she would have had to walk a couple of miles to school, and they didn't think that was good. So she lived three years, in Auburn with her uncle and aunt, and um, it wasn't a perfect situation. They were very good to her, but my grandfather had very good friends, Jim and Bertha Butcher, who lived in Harrisville, and the school was right in the next block. And in 1918, my mother came to Harrisville to live with Bertha and Jim Butcher, and it was a perfect arrangement. Bertha Butcher was a wonderful person to raise her, and then my sister stayed with her when my parents went back to school and built a house right next door to the butchers, and Jim died about the time I was born, and my relationship with Bertha Butcher was a little different because by this time she was getting really too old to um, really watch over a child, particularly a child that got into a goodly amount of trouble, as I did. And that poem was a matter of discovery. Garrison Keillor recently told a group of writers that writing is discovery, and that's actually what happened in that particular poem. I guess I was sorting out 
my relationship with Bertha Butcher. The coat was in the attic. I pulled it down out of the attic and for some reason wrote the poem. Well, now you mentioned being in a lot of trouble as a child. One of the poems in your collection uh, actually kind of deals with with being in a form of trouble other than maybe self-spawned trouble. Uh, it's, <laughs> it's called Mr. Hardbarger. Kind of gives a lovely childhood memory of the timely intervention by an adult. Yes, and I might add, uh, I'm using trouble in somewhat of a lighthearted way. I just seem to get into mischief. Maybe that would be a better thing. I never was in trouble with the law. Standard kid stuff. Yes, but maybe some of it was a little more than standard kid stuff. Would you like for me to read Mr. Harbarker? I would be delighted. And this poem was actually written in that early class, and it was after reading a poem called The Boat by Stephen Vincent. And the form is similar to the form that he used. Mr. Hardbarger, I remember the time you rescued me. I was no more than five. You found me bound to the secluded maple, an Indian held hostage by two small cowboys. A flame seemed to be at my feet. I was tied securely imitation of the West. But we had only bad guys and a victim. Two blocks down at the Crown Theater, the Lone Ranger, Gene, and Roy rode in to make all right. We had a cast of three. At twelve bells, you appeared, horseless hero minus gun. Untie that rope, you said, and instantly were obeyed. That scene was far more vivid than any black and white. You went to your home to lunch. I ran to mine to live. And I take it that's based on an actual incident with you. It is, and the neighbor across the street, of course, had a visiting cousin. And it's always trouble when a visitor comes to town with new ideas. Well, a lot of the poems in Bertha Butcher's Coat revolve around uh, family and the places and objects tied to them. And I, I know, as as I know, much of this concerns your family. Where did you grow up? I grew up in Harrisville, and there is a poem, Child Life in Harrisville. And that poem took about a decade of thinking about and working on before I sent it out for publication because it did include real names. And Mr. Hardbarger is a real name. And I was concerned about that. But you know, Eric, the names refused to change. So I just decided that it was fine. We'd keep the names the way they were. So how did you become so familiar with your family's history? Because there's a great deal of it in this collection. I, it made me wonder if, if maybe I smelled a genealogist at work. Not really. You smelled a mother who talked about her great-grandmother, who lived, incidentally, until the 1920s. She was born in the 1830s. And so my mother knew her and heard the stories firsthand from my great-great-grandmother, and we also visited the farm. My grandfather stayed very close to my mother, even if my mother lived with the Butcher family. And we went to the family farm quite a lot, and that's the farm where the great-great-grandparents lived. So family stories, really. Now, I had to do some research occasionally just to check something out, 
but and that's surprising to me with poetry. Well, you had mentioned the family farm playing a big part in in some of your childhood, and there's certainly a recurring image of of a farm throughout many of the poems here. Um, I think the first one is probably the first poem in the collection, which is called Farm Map. Would you mind reading that for us? I'd be glad to read that. Farm Map. Spindly script records proper names, fragile as parchment, designates from whom each part was purchased, singles out fringe bits sacrificed, a third of an acre to Widow Dorfman, half an acre for the lifetime of a school. Pastel colors of each section are soft as leather binding and as dates now in memory. Dates of the 1800s, delicate as sarvis blossoms, harsh as the Civil War, when rumors rode on horses. When the girl traveled side saddle with a message, when the hired man hid five horses, and the old woman carried a shovel and basket filled with silver far into the woods, when a brother died in Andersonville on Christmas Eve. Later days were even darker, dark as the little mine for household coal where the old man would go to sit alone. After one by one, the children, grandchildren, and sweet great-granddaughter died. The map is tied with ribbon deep in color as ruby coating on miniature glass souvenirs with birth names and dates inscribed. Etched memories of children laughing, carnival music, prize can goods, cows and quilts, amid cheers for silk-clad jockeys harness racing, all echoing, from the old Ritchie County Fair. When rumors rode on horses, I love that line. Thank you. The this brings to mind that uh, one of the most engaging things I find about your your poems about family is that they're even though there's about someone else's family other than my own, these poems are very open and inviting. I used to know some folks when I worked in a public library. Uh, who, who kind of labored over their genealogy research day in and day out. And, and if, if they could stop you for five seconds, they wanted you to know all the details of their family history going back generations. And you were trapped there for a half hour while they told you. But these poems, while they span generations, the family members themselves aren't as important as the memories that they generated. And they're, so it's, it's very welcoming and, and we may not even know the characters being portrayed there ourselves, but we've had similar people in our own lives. That's right, and that's what I hoped would happen, that you would associate with your family as you read these. And pull those memories out from our childhoods as well. Yes. Now, there are a few of your poems here that seem to have found their wings by jumping off an entirely different inspirational cliff. And you had mentioned earlier that, that one of your poems you had tried to write in, in kind of a similar style to a, a, uh, someone else's poem. One that, that doesn't spring from a poetic style necessarily, but, uh, from actually a work of art, uh, you have called Le Demoiselle Schwartz. And it, it's rather unique in that it, it, it's ostensibly about the observation of a painting of the same title by the Swedish painter Anders Zorn, yet it, it does this in a way that's very personal to the observer. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Well, 
I like red. Red is my favorite color. And I happened on to that painting, which is filled with red. And by the way, it's easily accessible on the Internet. I believe there's a website for Anderson's art. But I was absolutely astounded when I looked at the faces of his models. And that's really what the poem is about. Would you mind reading that for us? I will. The Demoiselle Schwartz. Astounding accomplishment, Anders Zorn, to portray my mother and grandmother in mirror image when you did not know them. You posed two Parisian painters at their easels, wearing red, bathed in red, a color, to my knowledge, neither ancestor ever wore. Red splashed on four-fifths of the canvas, light from the window reflecting intense radiance on my mother's face. My mother's eyes concentrate on art coming alive before those eyes. All of her features she got just right. Sitting beside her, her mother, of an age the same, Impossible feat, but you deftly and definitely managed it. My grandmother's auburn hair is arranged just as it was the year you painted it. Her eyes, nose, lips are blurred in shadow. The easels face the painters, not the viewer, but I know the art. The art kept in a closet and for 60 years in an airtight drawer. Using short, thick, three-dimensional strokes of white and cream on dull black velvet, my grandmother paints Igret standing still. My mother paints a single tall ship at sea, an image depicting herself when small, knowing her mother died when she was five. The floor is oak as it was in both their houses. The chairs, homemade, burback for kitchen use, handed down from earlier generations. Paint tubes are lined up on a mantle. A bust of a Roman centurion sits on the floor. A window behind your two ladies filters in brilliant light. You do not show the women playing a duet on organ, harpsichord, or grand piano, but you prophesy. My mother will absorb art, not music. You do not share their hands, the hands I surely have inherited. Capable, determined, attentive hands that do not tremble. My great-grandmother's photograph should be on the mantle of your painting above artists' faces tilted toward each other at perfect angles. You do not share that third person detected in the tintype with her hands demurely crossed across her lap. Strong hands, identical to mine. My hands, at last with long nails when shorter in fashion, zip, button, snap, as I dress in my favorite color, your flamboyant red. I enjoy that. You could almost approach this, and I realize the direction you're coming at the poem from, but you could almost approach this as someone... Uh, walking a playful line with delusion. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it still seems still seems seems very tongue in cheek in that regard, but 
But uh, that that would be pos- one possible interpretation. I think that's an ephrastic poem. Um, maybe that term has been used before, but looking at a piece of art and just seeing where it takes you, and, and playful delusion certainly is a part of that. I've been in some poetry workshops where we've looked at postcards or, or photographs, and you could just go anywhere you want with that. Well, Mary Lucille DeVerry, thank you very much for giving us some of your time today. Thank you for being on the podcast. It was just wonderful to do this.